Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. Warm wishes for a happy new year. We at UCLA Extension join you in our great hope that this year will lock down COVID versus COVID locking us down as it did for most of last year. In looking back, our resiliency, creativity, and downright grit survived many tests, roadblocks, and heartaches. We honor all who passed and in their honor are committed to developing healthy futures for our families, friends, and colleagues. We start this new year as we started 2020 with the aspiration that our podcasts will give you additional perspectives, hard-to-find information, and long-term knowledge necessary for career and financial planning. It's in this vein that investment asset categories are discussed throughout our podcasts. All of us need savings for family growth, and family growth can be housing, apartment upgrades, emergency funds, auto purchases, children's education, and higher education, and most importantly, a long retirement lifestyle. We don't assume in any of our audience that large amounts are available to invest, but we do assume all of us would benefit by making investments knowing that asset classes like real estate, bonds, and stocks move through well-documented price cycles. You know, some people say, buy low, sell high, don't buy high, sell low. But all these asset categories have price cycles and they can tip you off of where they are in that cycle and we'll help with that. In brief, although no one has a crystal ball, we can likely all agree it's much better to buy real estate, stocks or bonds or other assets at lower prices so we can sell them in the future at higher prices. This is challenging and the additional challenge is to factor in interest rates and their impacts on investment values. For example, as we've seen since the 2008-2009 Great Recession, low interest rates have underpinned the boom in residential real estate, in bonds, and in stocks. And interest rates themselves have cycles, and their patterns impact the cycles of pretty much all asset investments. Those of you who have followed the financial markets know that the interest rate cycle has a strong impact on the jobs markets, on bankruptcy filings, and pretty much all spending decisions. Our UCLA Extension Economics and Finance courses offer fundamental preparation for getting behind economic trends and related financial analyses, as our instructors are really the top of the top, and they include, for example, the former head of the Government National Mortgage Association, heads of financial consulting firms, major banking executives, and even Federal Reserve Bank advisors. There is so much more in our courses than I can cover in 20 or 30 minutes twice a month. Today, I'm kicking off the new year with a tweak to our format we used last year. Each podcast from today will contain two brief sections. One will be a focus on key trends and potential financial opportunities, given a slow recovery from COVID, along with serious economic risks we're going to face along the way. The second part will be jobs preparation, which will help guide next job and career steps, given the compression of changes that relate to remote work, 
artificial intelligence, robotics, and even the upcoming 6G networks. We're rolling out 5G, but 6G is around the corner. And these networks power so much more than just our cell phones and TVs. These ultra-high-speed networks available to all will change many job requirements and change opportunities across pretty much all industries and professions. I use the words, quote, available to all, unquote, given that China and Europe, among others, are well ahead of us in rolling out advanced networks. China is rolling out 6G as we are rolling out 5G. And in fact, certain Scandinavian countries are working on 7G networks right now. Since all of our listeners on SoundCloud have access to our 31 prior podcasts, which lay an extensive foundation for better understanding economic growth, unemployment issues, excessive money creation by the Fed, our unimaginable government debt spiral continuing upwards, and our reliance as a country on continuing congressional bailout programs, I'll avoid repeating many of these fundamental drivers going forward. I do encourage you to go back and listen to some of them because they were foundational for 2020 and where we sort of step off and undertake our analyses of 2021. So kind of the bottom line is I'm going to avoid repeating many of these fundamental drivers going forward just because of time constraints. One of our listeners asked over the holidays, where should I start in understanding all the issues, cross currents, and risks we all have to deal with in this new year? Well, I'll start off by offering my own starting point and then explain what I think are the major drivers of risks and how to deal with them. My starting point is the fact that we were already in a cyclical economic downturn before COVID. Pre-COVID, our economy generated high unemployment that was pretty much hidden from view by the official reporting methods. In other words, underlying trends were not obvious and required a certain amount of digging to unearth. Jobs created after the 08-09 Great Recession, first of all, were importantly part-time, not full-time jobs. Millions of workers dropped out of the official labor force after the Great Recession. In other words, they gave up finding full-time jobs, and therefore official unemployment data didn't count them at all and substantially underreported joblessness in many of the data sets. And additionally, as I mentioned, they didn't separate part-time from full-time employment. In parallel to the employment issues, government spending ramped up to provide additional money benefits and overall expand government services. And that goes for national programs, state programs, and local programs. In brief, we gave ourselves false comfort as the economy was not really growing, even though growth was officially reported. My view is this growth was reported as a result of understating real inflation. Let me give you a quick example, and it's a little bit dramatic. It's only an example. The gross national product or the gross domestic product, whichever you choose, is the sum of the value. It's the market value of all goods and services produced in the economy, obviously in us. If this value would go up by 5% year to year, that might sound really good, but it could be terrible. For example, there's a big difference between an inflation rate of zero and one of, say, 7% to pick a high but reasonable number. The process is you have to essentially subtract the inflation rate from the year-to-year GNP or GDP growth. 
So they, first of all, they get the market value of all goods and services, then they subtract the inflation rate, and the balance is approximately the real growth rate. In following the example I just gave, if prices across the board really went up 7% instead of 0%, then a 5% GNP growth rate is really minus 2% of real growth, 5% minus the 7% inflation. This means that businesses actually sell or sold 2% less in numbers of shirts, restaurant meals, movie tickets, and so forth. In this example, economic growth is not 5%, but it's a minus 2%. After several years, this trend, which I argue has been in place before COVID and continues now, results in lower actual production and actually lower. It's hard to invest in new plant and equipment if the number of items produced is declining year to year. Yes, one can invest to lower the production costs, but this normally means replacing human labor with automation. So this is not only not creating new jobs, it's actually adding to unemployment by replacing jobs. COVID compressed many expense trends into what I call tragic trends. Remote work out of necessity has pointed up a large amount of office space not really needed in our future economy. More remote work has, more so, remote work has impacted work apparel purchases, car usage, and sorry to note, on-site work staffs in excess of what is needed for a stagnant long-term economy. Another tragic trend for many is the large amount of retail space, including strip malls, versus what is needed. We've known for years that U.S. shopping space per capita, I mean, we go back 10, 10 years, 20 years, this is true. We've known that U.S. shopping space per capita has been two to four times that of other industrial countries. For example, any or all the European countries. And many retailers were in trouble before COVID. And now we know that many shopping areas, including Main Street and a lot of medium-sized cities and most malls, wherever they're located, are having serious survival issues. Amazon was a strategic threat well before COVID. So now we have Amazon and we have more competitors in that space. Shopify is certainly one of the large successful ones. And in addition to that trend that was already in place, we have COVID. Another tragic trend is our educational preparedness as a country. For decades, we've seen U.S. K-12 metrics steadily dropping versus our global competitors. These issues are really important, perhaps most important, but rely on public policy. So we'll continue to focus on our podcast mission while definitely shedding tears that our K-12 education presently appears lost at sea. Let's move up the age curve and give some thoughts to professional education preparation, which is key to our mission. It's no secret U.S. creativity, competitive foundations, economic growth, defense, and financial strength are a result of leadership in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And in these categories, I'm including biochemistry, physics, medicine, healthcare, and many other related subjects and degrees. The countries with the most STEM graduates, and I'm using STEM instead of repeating science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, include China, which a couple of years ago had 4.7 million graduates in the 
STEM curricula. India had 2.6 million. We in the U.S. had 568,000. Russia had 561,000, and I'll stop there. But a point made by another researcher is that China graduates more graduates in the very top of their classes than we do graduates in total in the STEM subject matter areas. And that's becoming very, very dangerous going forward. And I think you can appreciate that, so I'm not going to dwell on that. Why do I mention that? To be scary? No. To suggest we are inferior to China and India? No, and absolutely not. I'm only trying to get us all on the same page so we'll be jobs competitive sooner rather than later. How about the 6G I mentioned? Well, let's recall 5G is up to 100 times faster than 4G. And I don't know if you know that 6G, as I mentioned, is in rollout in China, and 6G can be up to 1,000 times faster than 5G. And why is this important? Think about driverless cars and trucks that have become a reality thanks to 4G and 5G. Data transmission speed makes many past impossible activities not only possible today, but profitable. Think about 3D printing, which is replacing large manufacturing facilities for making small parts and some consumer goods. And also think about the Internet of Things that was publicized years ago. In the Internet of Things, we could control our alarm systems and home temperatures from anywhere on the planet with a smartphone. Today, that's not even table stakes for a discussion. We have to now plan for small factories, maybe in as many locations as Kinko stores, manufacturing items and small parts where there could be a central design location in Paris, Los Angeles, or even Shanghai, or anywhere else. Distributed 3D printing controlled from a single global source will allow, given the fast data network, almost real-time manufacturing and customer pickup. Virtually no transportation costs and no waiting. Very few jobs will be secure in the next few years without updated and continuous training or education in STEM-related subjects, including digital production management, product design, customer relationship management. Higher education in STEM is needed in architecture, in landscape design, product development, systems design, even farming. I mentioned trucking even accounting and auditing, and it goes on and on. The 5G and 6G networks are just the enablers for supply chain redesign, team collaborations, and yes, even K-12 education. For now, please consider these thoughts for your personal readiness, regardless of your job profession or your career plans. First of all, in the 2020 COVID global economy, many more companies than Amazon flourished. In the Financial Times Weekend Edition, January 2nd, there is an article titled, quote, Prospering in the Pandemic, 2020's Most Successful Businesses, unquote. You can Google it, and by answering the Financial Times brief set of survey questions, it's free to you. This list of 100 companies shows the products and services across all industries that are impacted by new approaches for many industries. Of course, Tesla and Amazon are on the list, but so are many companies I'd venture to say that many people have not even heard of that are working to redefine a multitude of supply chains and disrupt many industries. And these are just the companies that have floated to the surface as successful companies. I'm sure there are many thousands of companies under this list. 
Secondly, consider our economy overall will be one of stagflation this year. That is, no real growth and inflation that is percolating just below the surface of officially related reports and press releases. When the top global investment entities, I've referred to before, that number, I think less than a thousand, who move trillions of dollars of investment through the global markets, when they make decisions to lessen investment in one asset group versus another asset group, that's when the advisors get on board and they bring out charts and graphs. They call an end to a certain trend or beginning to a new trend. Well, frankly, after these thousand or so major investors have allocated or reallocated trillions of dollars of their investment monies, it's a little bit late in the game. And it's very difficult to get ahead of them, but I don't think it's impossible. Presently, they have trillions of dollars invested in bonds. And when they decide inflation is undeniable and is running hotter than the official reports, and they know the world is watching it run hotter than the official reports, watch out. Not only will long-term interest rates spike up, but many companies will be suddenly impacted. Owing variable rate debt will be toxic, and companies with high debt needing to be refinanced will become new economic victims. Those companies with long-term debt fixed close to today's levels will reap the benefits. So when you are investing, first of all, I think it's very difficult to invest in specific stocks. It's much more effective, in my view, to invest in exchange-traded funds or groups of stocks. Keeping in mind there are thousands of mutual funds, there are thousands of exchange-traded funds, there are tens of thousands of companies traded in the stock exchanges. So it's not difficult to find recommendations by various people here and there, whether they're good or not. You can find out by tracking them. But looking at exchange-traded funds can be really important because it will allow you to diversify your portfolio no matter how big it is, no matter how small it is, by industry and by geographical location. In the last podcast, I mentioned for your consideration the category of REITs that may own apartment complexes in Class B cities. I also mentioned precious metals. I will mention a number of asset classes, but I think today's challenge is to prepare for an exit of large investors from the long-term bond market. That's my opinion. Thirdly, consider that the Federal Reserve is all in and must continue to print new dollars to buy new and refinanced U.S. government debt, also European government debt. The higher and higher levels of U.S. government debt and larger and larger amounts of Federal Reserve money creation are not sustainable. In November this year versus last year, the U.S. money supply went up by almost 40%, 40%. The big money sees this, while most in our workforce and even small investors are not aware. A normal increase in money supply at this stage in a recovery would be 3 to 6%. 40% may be the highest money supply increase ever. Even a continuation of half that amount threatens high future inflation that cannot avoid being officially reported at some point. The risks are an allocation of trillions of dollars outside of the U.S. bond market and likely outside the U.S. dollar itself to the extent possible. The issue there is the dollar accounts for about 70% of global trade. It's not so easy to diversify trillions of dollars outside of the dollar markets. But 
it is reasonable to begin to reallocate trillions of dollars outside of the bond market into other markets, actually including the stock markets, which has been happening already, in my view. The dollar's global role is declining, and it's under attack by Russia and China and others, but it will remain the key reserve currency, in my view, for the next five-plus years. So the dollar will remain important, but remaining important doesn't mean that it won't decline more and more. Number four, as we save for the long term, it's important to minimize owning risky assets. And those are assets that are priced at the top end of their trading ranges. And I think we could agree with what a lot of those are today. And alternatively, consider investment assets that are at the lower end of their trading ranges. For example, I think we could agree that housing is at the top end. And as long as interest rates are kept close to zero, at least for U.S. government borrowing as the benchmark, the real estate market will benefit from a continuation of low interest rates and also low inventory on the market. That'll change. It always does. But for the year 2021, residential real estate for most of the year will probably remain strong, barring a shock to the system. Stocks directly benefit from Fed liquidity, and this should continue through 2021. However, oftentimes there are large pullbacks, even during a bull market. So it's not going to be a smooth ride and a shock to the system, which could be uh, an issue with inflation, recognized issue with inflation. It could be an issue with the dollar. But pending a major issue, which could occur, Large pullbacks in the stock market occur anyway, even at bull markets. So diversification is always key. Investing in asset groups that are more the future than the past. We'll talk more about that in future podcasts. But I think most of us could agree that bonds are beyond the high end of their historical range. So in total, as I see it, the order of the next major recession, how it could occur would be bonds begin to decline in price as the U.S., Europe, and British debt is refinanced and newly issued, as more and more government debt hits. As I mentioned in the last podcast, about $8 trillion just on U.S. debt is going to be issued and refinanced just this year. And the Fed can't buy all the world's government debt all the time. Their strategy, in my view, is to keep buying bonds as long as they can to keep interest rates low, as they know they must be kept low to avoid major issues like government debt ballooning totally out of control. Borrowers are essentially protected by this Fed strategy, and bond investors, particularly the world's retirees, are the victims. You may be able to imagine that there are many retirees who have large amounts of cash that they've saved over their working years, and they're making almost no interest rate. And so they have almost no income from large amounts of cash, as long as they keep it invested in the bond market, which has been the way they've learned to invest. So far, this Fed strategy of money creation and buying the U.S. government debt has pushed more and more money into stocks and real estate as pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, and other major investment groups demand higher returns than the bond market pays. So they're seeking higher returns. They're taking on higher and higher risk, but it's been pretty measured in terms of how much new investments they've made in the U.S. bond market. China, for one, reportedly has not invested one more dollar in the U.S. government bond market for about three years. We are in the end game of low interest rates, again in my view, 
and no one really knows how much longer the endgame will last. So again, as I mentioned in our prior podcast, I'll reiterate, because data has supported, thankfully, my conclusions late last year, my expectations for 2021. Interest rates, short term, say two years or less, will continue where they are today between zero and one percent as long as possible. Long-term rates will move up during the year, quite possibly with one or more panic spikes up as inflation begins to be recognized. And the long-term U.S. Treasuries may be yielding toward the end of this year more in the 5 to 6% range instead of in the 2 to 3% range. Inflation concerns, we are beginning to witness it. Raw materials prices continue to go up, which I mentioned late last year. And this is unusual for weak economic conditions worldwide, but agricultural commodities like wheat, corn, soybeans, and so forth, and key manufacturing commodities like copper and coal and steel have been trending up in recent months. The dollar is dropping, has dropped over 10% in the past six or so months. Imports are more expensive. Fourthly, residential rent increases have been suppressed, and so far we are going from the termination of one protection program or eviction protection program to another. This likely cannot continue this way. Almost all the legislation ultimately will expire in a certain number of months, not years, in my view. Rent increases will feed into the consumer price index. Wages have not decreased during the recession. In fact, for a number of job categories, they're actually going up pretty significantly. So it's either feast or famine in the job market, which I've commented on before. Supply chains are being rebuilt. As I've mentioned, China source manufacturing is being replaced, starting with pharmaceuticals, but including defense and high tech. Energy prices continue to strengthen. So I continue to be concerned, as you know, about another major stock market sell-off. So any investments that I do make will be gradual and they will be targeted. I've mentioned a few of those. I'll mention more of those. And you can check to see how much those are on target over the next number of weeks and months. There's been a divergence between the stock market, bond market, and commodities market now for a long time. And this is showing signs of changing. And I think, as I mentioned before, rising commodity prices are the canary in the coal mine. And we've really seen a continuation of the commodity prices moving up. It appears, and long story short, that large money managers are beginning to realign asset class investments. So be careful about following the herd in the stock or bond markets. Just be very careful. I'll offer a reminder that we are again offering a free course It's a six-week course beginning January 15th. You may enroll now if you go to www.uclaextension.edu. And on that homepage, you will see UCLA X Open, which is a, a big box. And you can navigate to our free courses. My free course is the 2021 Panic, What's Next, aside from 2021. What's next? Navigating panics, recessions, and recoveries. Again, that begins on January 15th and includes two live sessions. The course does not require a textbook. It has pretty much all the material self-contained or recommended or available through various websites that are in the course. So please do join us. And with that, I look forward to Again, catching up with you in two weeks. Take care. Be vigilant. 
Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.